there's nothing that we like to do that actually brings us true joy in our culture that at least in my life, I hadn't enmeshed with alcohol. A lot of the reentry into life without alcohol is about learning that all those things are actually really fun anyway. You know, we kind of have to de- disentangle alcohol from those things and, and understand that, yeah, our intentions haven't been bad. You're listening to Make Some Noise Podcast, episode number 515 with guest Annie Grace. Welcome to Make Some Noise Podcast, your guide for strategies, tools, and insight to empower yourself. I'm your host, Andrea Owen, global speaker, entrepreneur, life coach since 2007, and author of three books that have been translated into 18 languages and are available in 22 countries. Each week, I'll bring you a guest or a lesson that will help you maximize unshakable confidence, master resilience, and make some noise in your life. You ready? Let's go. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the show. I am so glad that you're here. Hey, I know a lot of you skip through the intro, and that's fine. I do too in some of the podcasts that I listen to when there's like a lot of chit chat. But there's something important I want to say about this episode coming up. So please stick around. I'm just going to make one quick announcement first, and that is the Daring Way online group opens for registration pretty soon in the beginning of April. So if you want to be a part of that, there's only 14 spots available. I have to cap it at that many. Head on over to andreaowen.com slash group and sign up to be the first to be notified. That way you can guarantee that you have a spot. It doesn't, you don't have to sign up if you sign up to be notified. You know, I think you know what I mean. And also there's an early bird discount. So andreaowen.com slash group for the Daring Way online group that is coming up. All right. So we are sort of headed towards the end of the recovery theme that we're doing here. And again, we're all recovering from something. So these episodes aren't just about drinking, but I know there's a fair amount of you who have either struggled with this in the past or sometimes get into places where you're like, hmm, maybe my drinking is too much, or you know someone where this is a challenge for them. And Annie Grace is here. If you are in the in the kind of circles of alcohol-free world, the alcohol-free world, you probably know who Annie Grace is. And I think that her work has really changed the conversation and is phenomenal. So I'm going to read her bio for those of you that don't know her. And then I want to say something about how she talks about this. Alrighty. Annie Grace is the author of This Naked Mind, Control Alcohol, Find Freedom, Discover Happiness, and Change Your Life, and The Alcohol Experiment, a 30-day alcohol-free challenge to interrupt your habits and help you take control. She grew up outside Aspen, Colorado in a one-room log cabin without running water or electricity. Having discovered a passion for marketing, Annie Grace earned a Master's of Science in Marketing and dove into corporate life. As the youngest vice president and a multinational company at the age of 26, her drinking career began in earnest. At 35, in a global C-level marketing role, she was responsible for marketing in 28 countries, and she was drinking almost two bottles of wine a night. Knowing she needed a change, but unwilling to submit to a life of deprivation and stigma, Annie Grace embarked on a journey to painlessly gain control of alcohol. For her, that process resulted in no longer wanting to drink. Never happier, she left her executive role to write and share this naked mind with the world. In her free time, she loves to ski, travel, and enjoy her beautiful family. Okay, so the thing that I love about 
Annie Grace's work is that she has been able to start a conversation with people who may not identify as a quote unquote alcoholic. And you'll hear her tell me towards the beginning of our interview that she doesn't, I can't remember if she says she doesn't use the word or I can't remember how she words it, but she doesn't, she doesn't, it's not a thing for her. I love that. I do. I love that because that word, I mean, it's not exactly a term of endearment, right? We hear it. We immediately have a thought about it. I've talked about this at length when I talk about my own recovery. I am someone who does identify. I am someone who identifies as an addict. I have that type of behavior. The reason that I don't, and I think but what I'm about to say is both of these things can be true and both of these things can be helpful. Both of these things in my opinion, are important. The work that Annie does, how she talks about it in that way and in her bio says, knowing she needed a change but unwilling to submit to a life of deprivation and stigma, I think that that is a very important conversation and it's it's as a leader for her, I love that she's doing that. And at the same time, I have no plans to walk away from my identity as a alcoholic slash addict Partly because, yes, it resonates and I identify as one, and partly because I feel like it's my work to help drop the stigma. To me, I feel like if I walk away from it now, it sends a message of, I don't want that as part of my identity because of the stigma. So all of you people who do identify can just kind of stay over there. And I I might be speaking about that a little dramatically, and that's okay. But I feel called to be a face of someone who does identify in this manner. And my hope is that I can help people see themselves if they choose, and the stigma starts to drop. Because as we know about shame, is that When we don't talk about it, like the thing that nobody wants to talk about, the thing that is bringing us shame, and in this case, it might be that someone identifies as an addict and or alcoholic, the shame grows. It's unable to stay. Do I think that Annie's work by not identifying, you know, as an alcoholic sort of um, exacerbates shame? Maybe, maybe not. It's, It's not really for me to decide. Regardless, I think her work is incredible and I think it's so helpful. And again, I think both can be true. Both can be true. The way that she talks about it and the way that I talk about it. Both can be true and important and just necessary. Necessary. All right. So I feel like I got my point across. (laughs) I hope you enjoy this conversation. And without further ado, here is my talk with Annie Grace. Annie, thank you so much for being here on the show. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I was telling you before we started recording that I read your book several years ago. I got it on audiobook and listened to it while I was working out. And it's, I think it's it's so good and that you break down, you know, it's not heavy-handed by any means. Um, you know, and it's not a story of like I found myself unconscious in a blackout and and ended up having to go through 10 stints of rehab, which if that's someone's journey, we you know appreciate for that and cheer for you. But I think what spoke to me was that you were such quote unquote like the everyday woman. And I think so many people can see themselves 
in that. So let, let's start there. And can you tell everyone what your reco- your recovery story is? Like, when did you know the moment or the time in your life where you needed to quit drinking? So it was a very, very slow sort of journey. Really, it was I was drinking at happy hours, and then I was suddenly drinking at home and kind of like, oh, I could go for a run or I could pour a bottle, you know, pour a glass of wine in a bottle. Um, and then, you know, ultimately, uh, about 10 years later, I was had two kids, I was traveling all over the world. And I just really started to question like, huh, is this is this good for me? Is this healthy for me? What what is going on here? And so I did what you normally do, which is just decide to cut back, which I could do, I could cut back without really a problem. But every time I would sort of deprive myself of alcohol, it felt much more like an alcohol diet. Um, yeah, just feeling very much like I was missing out on life and deprived. And so I would just, you know, say, oh, well, oh, well I'll just drink more. And that that kind of la- lasted for a long time until I kind of decided to stop trying that and actually just keep drinking, but learn everything I could about alcohol. And it was through that process that I actually stopped rather than mm-hmm. any moment. So, so let me make sure I, I have this correct. So you decided to start researching alcohol and the effects on the body before you started researching like what what makes a person a quote unquote alcoholic. Is that what happened? So I don't I don't use the word alcoholic. Like mm-hmm. one of the things in my research is that that word is um, there's no real scientific or medical basis for that word anymore, and there never really was. And no, so there wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> an interesting thing. So yeah, I wasn't, I was researching for my own, really asking the question. Um, you know, I'd been asking the question when I think anybody drinks too much, we start to ask the question like, huh, what's going on here? Like, what's wrong with me? Why am I doing this? Why does everybody else seem smart and in control? And then I ended up, you know, really being struck with a different question, which was why, why is this different? I didn't used to you know, drink that much at all. I didn't, I didn't used to need it to relax or have a good time. Um, and why do I feel like now I feel like I'm sad if I don't drink or I feel like I'm out of, you know, the, the group. And then what did you, and I know this is a loaded question, but what did you end up finding? And maybe what did you end up finding, finding in the first part of your research? So it was about a year's worth of research and it was staggering on all levels. You know, every, I started with a list of all of the things that I believe that alcohol did for me. So it relaxed me. It helped me loosen up in the bedroom. It helped uh, me network better. It made me better at my job. Um, You know, it was fun. Every single reason when I went and took to uh, Google Scholar, which is great because any off the internet can download scientific studies for like 50 or a hundred bucks. And I just started to download these studies of like what was really going on. It doesn't do those things. And so like very, very slowly and just with this every, at every turn, it was like, what? Oh my gosh. So it doesn't relax you. It actually releases mm-hmm. cortisol in the body, which is the stress hormone. Wait, it it doesn't make me happier and make me have fun. It actually, you know, by this neurological connection, it actually numbs my ability to experience joy from normal things, which is why I feel like it makes me have fun is because it's really the alcohol propping up my happiness mechanisms. And it was just staggering and over and over. And so by the end of that research, uh, there was no big moment. I I just sort of told my husband, like, I think I'm done drinking after this. And he was like, yeah, right. 
don't really want to do it anymore. And I just really haven't. What in, in your research or, you know, whether it's just even looking at the programs that you've run over the last many, many years, why do you think willpower, which is something, a word that we hear a lot and many of us come to absolutely loathe, but why do you think willpower doesn't work when people want to start stop drinking? So if you think about willpower and you think about humanity in general, like the best thing about being a human is we have a volition or a will. We have the ability to choose. And when we think about sort of, you know, crimes against humans, the ones that are most important to us are the ones that over subvert somebody's will. And that is what willpower is. You are literally dividing yourself right in half and saying, there's something I want to be doing, but I'm going to subvert my own will and not let myself do it. Mm -hmm. And so you're creating this inner war, this cognitive dissonance, this inner battle between you and you. And of course, that battle by itself causes an extraordinary amount of pain. And as somebody who uses alcohol to self-medicate and numb pain, it really leads you to end up drinking more. Yeah, it's it seems always felt like this never ending, never ending battle. And tell us about this naked mind and like what is its origin story and and what is it, what it is exactly. So it was so fascinating with this naked mind. I was doing that years worth of research, still mm-hmm. drinking. I decided, you know, I'm going to stop with with all these games I've been playing with myself, like the game to cut back or the game to, you know, make myself rules, only three glasses of wine, or maybe I was only going to drink beer because I didn't like beer as much, whatever those rules were. So yeah. I sort of put all those rules aside and I ended up saying, okay, I'm just going to drink as much as I want. Whenever I want, I'm just going to do two things. I'm going to educate myself on what alcohol is and does in the body. So I really know something about this thing that is, you know, I'm drinking more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to let myself off the hook. I'm going to stop with like this blame and shame because I was just feeling so terrible. I was, I felt like a smart and in control person in every other area of my life, but this was the strange exception. And so I started that journey of research. And when I completed that journey, not only did I not want to drink, but I had, you know, reams of paper of how I kind of made connections based on this paper and how this, you know, this thing interacted with this thing. And I ended up putting those documents just out, very dirty PDF, riddled with typos, a lot of my own kind of musings. But I put it out online in, gosh, it would have been early 2015. And 20,000 people downloaded it within two weeks. Wow. watching on the back end. And people started emailing me from all over the world and saying like, this helped me. And one guy emailed me and he said, you should, you should publish this. You should make it a book. Mm-hmm. So I um, was like, well, I don't know how to do that. I mean, I don't have an audience. I don't have a a platform, but he said you could self-publish on Amazon. Yeah. So I saw, I'm already guessing you're pretty resourceful. You could figure that out. Annie. <laughs> know it was a thing to be yeah. honest. And, you know, I had no intention of leaving my job and all that sort of stuff. So I was like, all right. So I self-published on Amazon. And um I remember the first day it sold 10 copies and I was like, who are these 10 people? This is so strange. Mm-hmm. Right. And then uh by the end of uh, but a few months later by December, December 31st was the big kind of pivotal thing because everybody wants to take a break for yeah. dry January. So it sold a hundred copies and I was like, what is happening right now? Anyway, it, it went on to my books have now sold over a million copies and it's been just really, really a ride. What do you think the appeal was? Like what was different about what you were talking about versus what other even, you know, famous recovery programs were talking about? 
I think it's twofold. Number one is this naked mind is really predicated on positive emotion. So feeling good in your decision, not feeling powerless, not feeling out of control, actually feeling really empowered through education so that you feel in control to make whatever decision you want to make. It is not about needing to get sober. It's not about being in recovery. It's not about, you know, even stopping drinking forever. I would never say I'm never going to drink again because uh-huh. I wouldn't know I was successful until I was dead. So, uh, and and by the way, how the brain works, creating that kind of ultimatum really creates this pressure. It creates this yeah. forbidden fruit syndrome. So this naked mind is really about like, you know, seeing this decision in my life as this super health conscious, um, kind of badass, subversive decision where I'm not going to just go along with um, the status quo. And and that, I think, is one of the reasons that people talk about my book, because it it ceases to be something shameful. It starts to be something right. where people get tattoos, you mm-hmm. know, and start to like really like talk about it from the rooftops because if you think about a book the only way for a book to really sell um that many copies is it has to be word of mouth there's no yeah. other way and so for people to talk about a topic like this i think is really a testament to the fact that it is about it is about a life affirming choice not kind of a sad punishment and the other aspect of that is that you know when you think about behavior change in general I think we really have sort of an erroneous approach overall that we're a lot of us are starting to wake up to right now. But what we do is we generally just think, okay, I'm just going to change the behavior. We don't consider what we know about the behavior or how we feel about the behavior. So for instance, when I was just trying to cut back on drinking, I was just trying to cut back. I didn't know anything new or different about alcohol. I hadn't explored it. And I certainly felt like I didn't want to be cutting back. I was having to use willpower. I was having to force myself to not do something I wanted to do. And so I've kind of flipped that narrative on its head where this naked mind in the beginning of the book, I say, don't stop. Like, actually, I encourage you to keep drinking while you read this book. Mm -hmm. And all we're going to do here is I'm going to teach you a few new things, things you didn't know, things that are scientific. And then your emotion will change. And if and when your emotion changes, which it does um, for people who read the book, uh, a lot of people who know me joke, they're like, I'm not reading your book because I don't want to accidentally stop drinking because so many other people in my sort of circle (laughs) accidentally stopped drinking uh, because they read the book and they just don't feel like they want it anymore. But think of it that way. If we have new, new information, new knowledge, new knowledge helps us feel differently. And when we feel differently, then change the behavior becomes relatively easy. And I think that's why it's such a different approach. That's fascinating. Uh, and, I, and I love too that I love stories like yours that just sort of happened organically, although, you know, who, who knows it's some kind of like divine download and things like that. But instead of setting out to like change, change the world and especially around this topic. Uh, my sobriety story is, so my my dad got sober when I was 18. That was in 1993. And he got sober with Alcoholics Anonymous. So many years later, I saw myself in a very same position as him, high bottom, very high functioning. And when I decided to quit, it was 2011 at the time. And I went to recovery meetings because it was all I knew. Like That was like my only option. And what was in, so in five months and I relapsed and I, what I realized in that moment of relapse was the intense amount of shame I felt coming back to those recovery meetings. And I also want to point out, like, I am an optimist. So I, I do think that I had that kind of advantage of being more resilient to it and 
And also in this industry, I have the tools to be able to be more resilient around it, but that is not the case for everyone. And I can see why some people continue to drink in these other programs where, where there is more of, you know, I like that you said that you put positive emotions around it in these other programs where there is more challenging, I don't like to call them bad, but there are more challenging, more intense emotions where some people don't come back. And and I love that your program creates a more empowering and also puts the puts the onus. I don't know how to explain this and the difference, but the onus on the person rather than more esoteric. Just it feels like it gives you a little bit more control and power around the decision to either cut back or stop altogether. The moment that I realized, because of course I'm on my own journey here, right? And so I'm doing my own thing. I I don't really understand the dynamics of sort of traditional recovery. And of course that I ruffled quite a few feathers as you can imagine. Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) The old timers. Yeah. (laughs) That what you just said was true. My own kind of experience of it. I was actually, I had the really cool opportunity to be on Red Table Talk um, in 2021. And I was there. So it was at Will Smith's house. You know, Jada Pinkett Smith is the host of that show. Mm -hmm. and her her grandmother and or Willow's grandmother. Anyway, I was there with Kelly Osborne, who had just relapsed during the pandemic. And so they were recording two sort of alcohol-based episodes back to back. So I was, you know, in the green room. I could see her out of the corner of my eye talking at the red table. And I hadn't been up yet, but I was watching on the screen and listening to what was being said. And I remember, you know, her talking about how she had relapsed after many years and what had happened and the specifics. And then it came to a point where uh, Gammy actually asked her, okay, well, Kelly, do you have a support system now, now that you're kind of back on track? And she said, no, because 90% of my women's group relapsed. And so it disbanded. Nobody came back. And I just remember feeling like sick to my stomach thinking, how have we how have we lost the plot on this conversation to where the shame of coming back is actually the toxic thing, right? right? Because it's not our behavior that makes us good or bad. It's when we hide. It's when we feel shame. You know, that's what keeps us stuck. And so for during this time when like the women arguably needed them, each other more than any other time, they were not showing up for each other, not coming back because they were all so individually ashamed. And had they known that all of the other people were doing the same thing, they probably could have had so much solidarity and so much strength in the quote failure, which I wouldn't even, you know, call it a failure. We actually call it like a data point at this naked mind. It's just data. You know, that's what it is. You drank, you realize you didn't want to. That's what happened to Kelly. She got data, in my opinion. There doesn't need to be a meaning around it. And certainly not a meaning that creates distance and shame and and kind of exacerbates the problem. That is fascinating. Yeah, I, I agree with you. That shame is, I, I am at a loss for words because I know how powerful it can be and how it can take over people's decisions and behaviors and and right way of thinking and their best selves. I'm interrupting this conversation to bring you a few words from one of our sponsors. If the last few years have taught us anything, it's that our mental health is of the utmost of importance. Am I right? You know, this is a topic that we talk about a lot on the show, and I've shared with you my own personal experiences around my own mental health, and that my mental health took a bit of a nosedive over the course of the pandemic. And one of the things I knew about even before the pandemic was how much meditation 
helped my mental health. And that's why I love Headspace. Headspace improves mental health through guided meditations. They have mindfulness practices, breathing and calming exercises, which is my absolute favorite, is the breath work. And they have so much more. They can help you reduce anxiety, boost your mood, help you sleep better. Headspace has the world's largest library of content with over a thousand hours of clinically proven mental health exercises. They have a wide range of teachers with diverse backgrounds and areas of expertise. It's pretty specific and niche in there. I highly, highly recommend it. Again, I love the breath work. That's the one that I've been doing a few times a week. Headspace has helped me and more than 100 million people worldwide. They can help you too. So listen up. You do not want to miss this. I've arranged something special for a limited time. All of you can try Headspace for free for 30 days. No, no money, zero dollars by going to headspace.com slash noise 30. You won't find this offer anywhere else and you must use my link, H-E-A-D-S-P-A-C-E.com slash noise 30 to unlock all of the Headspace free for 30 days. This is not something they normally do. Headspace.com slash noise 30. And again, thank you for supporting our sponsors because that in turn supports this show. So I want to slightly shift gears and ask you about anxiety because I know a lot of my listeners are raising their hand and tend to be anxiety prone. So what are some ways, I think you talk about five of them, five ways that alcohol increases anxiety when we think a lot of times that it's actually helping. Yeah. And and just to say that like I have struggled with anxiety my whole life. So I was I was very young and I remember my parents who are hippies just saying, well, just just you know, be here now and and just sort of uh, stop thinking and meditate. And I was like, oh my gosh, well, how do you do that? And then I remember going and you know being invited to some churches and going to church in college and it being you know don't be anxious, don't be afraid, and just feeling like how do you do that? And so I I really felt like alcohol for me was a how to kind of self medicate away from that anxiety. But of course, it came with a huge price tag, and so. Anyway, just to say that it it made it worse. Um, it made it better, which was very deceptive in the short term, and then mm-hmm. made it a lot worse in the long term. Alcohol anxiety is a a really high energy emotion, unlike depression, right? And so, alcohol actually increases the adrenaline response in the body, which of course increases anxiety, and it increases the cortisol response of the body, which increases anxiety. Um, and then there's a whole psychological aspect of if you feel shame or regret or worry, it gives that that a focal point. So you start to really create a narrative of what's wrong with me, which, by the way, is is kind of collaborated collaborated in our society that there is something wrong with people who become addicted who or who overdrink. We've we've missed the point that alcohol is actually addictive to human beings. It doesn't really matter who you are. If you drink enough in the right time, the right volume and circumstance, you can become addicted. So mm-hmm. alcohol, my friend Laura McCowan, who I know you've had on this this yeah, podcast. Yeah, she's a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's so great. She says alcohol is literally like pouring gasoline on your anxiety. And I think that has been my experience for sure. But then the question becomes, you know, how do you manage anxiety sort of after you put down put down a drink? And I'm curious about like 
how you manage anxiety in your life. Yeah, it depends. It's, there's there are times in my life where medication is the answer, but normally, and I and I think anxiety is shows up slightly differently in people's lives. But there are days, and thankfully they're a little bit more few and far between, where I just wake up with it. I wake up and my heart rate is faster. I feel on edge, like that feeling of you want to, you are about to crawl out of your skin, and it would just be easier if you could just. I always imagine like I wish I had a zipper from top to bottom where I can just like step away from what whatever this is that's living inside of my body. So I used to resist that all the time and think like, what is wrong with me? Why am I like this? Why can't I just calm down? Everybody else can calm down except me. Like, do people not like me? Cause I'm, you know, like that whole spiral. <laughs> it makes me tired even just saying all that out loud. But I have learned to just accept it. If I wake up with it, 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 I look at it now as like a like a annoying house guest that I really didn't want to come over, but I'm obligated because I said yes. And like I'm just like, all right, well, come on in. Like you'll only be here for the day. Just you know, there's the guest room. And if I can cancel appointments that day, I will. And I just don't caffeinate at all if I can that day. And I try to take care of myself. And, and honestly, Annie, like <laughs> it's what everyone says, like they've been telling us for years, make sure you get enough sleep, make sure you eat foods that don't aggravate your anxiety and that are good for you. Make sure you drink enough water, move your body, like the basics. That's what helps my anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think everything you said is so true in, in that point of resistance, in the point of resisting anxiety, we we do exacerbate it. And then I know for me, and I still really struggle with this is I judge myself for my anxiety. Yeah. And I, I really just feel like, especially cause I'm like, Oh my gosh, look at all the things I've done. I like, I help, I help other people not feel anxious. I, I, you know, I've helped people stop drinking. I've stopped drinking myself. I exercise, I meditate, I journal, I do all the things. And yet, and mm-hmm. yet, still wake up. And I love how you described it. So visceral, like you literally, for me, it's like, I just want to like run away. Like the feeling it's so physical and it's such a physical yes, feeling. It's a physiological experience for sure. And I think that um, how I've also heard it described, which I, I really found comfort in very similar to what you just said is like, it's kind of like, you know, the house guests kind of like putting on just a backpack full of rocks and just being like, all right, like, I'm just going to be a little bit stronger today because I'm walking around with, I'm just going to carry this, just my job for the day. I found that when I quit drinking and for me, it was, you know, I, I couldn't cut back. And and I also realized, I don't know if you talk about this in the book or you hear this a lot, but I didn't want to cut back. Like, I, you know, when people talk about moderation, I had Dr. Sherry Price was on here and she talks about, you know, helping people moderate. And when I thought about it and people would talk to me about it, I was like, I don't want that. Like, I don't, I don't want to just have one when I go out to dinner. Like I wanted to consume large quantities of it. When I figured out that I needed to totally abstain, I remember there was a short period of time where I felt better and I was kind of like riding this high of also like, Ooh, look what I can do. Like, look at how great I am that I can, that I can quit this thing. And then my anxiety started to go up. I remember that happened to my dad too. He passed away in 2016. He, when he quit drinking after a very long time of of a lot of drinking, he had to actually be hospitalized because of his anxiety and depression. And and um, I just wanted to say that out loud for people listening that sometimes it does become like a medical thing where you do need some some interventions and help. Have you found that in in some of the people that you've worked with where their anxiety kind of shoots up and they're not sure like which way to turn? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's really important to also say with alcohol, just in general, like when you, 
thinking about changing your relationship with alcohol, you do have to be careful. I mean, there are withdrawal symptoms. My sister-in-law, her mom was hospitalized and died in the hospital, having to be intravenously fed alcohol to keep her alive. Like, oh my God, just so far um, down. And, and I think it is, it is just such a dangerous thing. And, and what I think is so beautiful about like this conversation and having these sorts of conversations kind of out of the shadows, out of the anonymity is that like, wouldn't it be great if we can arrest this sooner, right? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be great if we can have this conversation earlier? And I know for me specifically with anxiety, like I was on four different medications for my anxiety while I was drinking and I was still crippled by it and probably making it worse. And since I was able, it was since I've stopped drinking and um, it's been, you know, over eight years now since I've had a drink, like I've been able to get off all of those medications. And so it, you know, slowly and, and with lots of, lots of other things, I think one of the things that, and I'd be curious how this is for you, but one of the things I think I personally also an optimist was so kind of resistant to, I kind of wanted to live this like seat of my pants lifestyle. I found that life is just so daily. Like it really is that I, I, as a human being need daily maintenance. You know? Oh yeah. Daily things. And I was just like, oh man, I'm gonna have to do some of these things every day. And and that's just the reality of it. That reality, I try to have a fist fight with like on the regular. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean it can't just be one and done? But look at what a good job I did. You know, yeah. it just but I do think it's it's helpful for people, especially when you're listening to experts like like us that Yes, we still, I remember when I, my very first therapist I had, and I had started seeing her when I was like 18 and I was in my twenties at that point in a really difficult relationship. And I asked her, I make up a story that you have like a perfect marriage. Can you please? And this was like in the nineties when therapists were not self-disclosing at all, but I, I almost like begged her and I'm like, can you please tell me just an anecdote or something about your life because I feel like you have all these really great tools and you're so wise. And she was probably in her forties, late forties at that point. And she started laughing like, but I I really thought that she had it all figured out. And she told me like kind of a, a funny story of a little tiff that her and her husband had, but that changed everything for me. And I was so thankful to see someone else who still had to do the work who taught it. So yeah. Anybody listening, Annie and I are raising our hands over here that we still have to do. <laughs> It's a forever journey. It never, it never ends. And I also think one of the interesting things that I've, so I've been really in the last, probably maybe the last year and and for sure in the last three or four months, just really struggling with like a new layer, you know? And I, and I think that this sort of work, like really learning who you are and stop, you know, not letting the 11 year old that was in pain or the six year old that had, you know, the traumatic experience run your life and make your decisions and dictate your emotional well being as an adult, like this sort of work, it is kind of like an onion. And Mm -hmm. some of the layers that are buried down, they, they're not even visible to you because the stuff that is above it is so much more acute. So on some ways, you know, early days I was dealing with, you know, just the voice in my head being really, really toxic. And, and you kind of solve that for the most part, never always, but for the most part. And then, and then you're sort of dealing with some beliefs that you held. And, and then as you get healthier, you actually reach these lower level, lower layers. And, and there's things under there that you're like, whoa, 
whoa, wait a second. And I think the tendency when you're going through a hard time, especially when you've been kind of on a personal growth journey for years is to feel like, oh, I'm going backwards or I, I haven't, I haven't got it. Like, you know, we, we tend to judge and I've just really realized that, no, you're just, it's, it's just, you're just healing a a deeper layer of yourself. And some of those deeper layers that weren't visible to you or weren't available to you earlier days, like there, there can be some really hard stuff there too. And it, it, if it gets, you know, it's not, it's not up into the, up into the right. It's, it's not right. that journey. It's a very circular back uh-huh. and forth everywhere in between kind of journey. It, it is a, a little, little tangle of, of a line for sure. I, I, you mentioned children and I know a lot of my listeners, um, well, I would say about 50% of them are, are mothers. And I'm curious just what your thoughts are in general about, the whole mommy wine culture. I know it was a hot topic, at least in our circles that talk about, about drinking and not drinking, but what is your, I'm just going to throw it over there just in, in a very general sense. Like tell us your thoughts about that whole culture of mommy wine drinking. So I had my first son in 2008 and it was not quite mm-hmm. like the culture it is now or was, you know, in later years. But I do remember that because I sort of didn't drink when I was pregnant and I felt so proud of myself. And I was like, oh yeah, of course. Like I don't have a problem because I don't even want alcohol when I'm pregnant. No big deal. Look at how morally superior I am. (laughs) But then I did feel like, oh, but I missed out on nine months. So I might as well like make up for that somehow. Right. I might as well like, uh, you know, double down a little bit. So after each of my kids, I have three um, and I I didn't drink at all for my third, but after each of my first two, my drinking did increase. And I remember my second, for sure, he was born in 2011. It really became a thing that if anything was happening in our lives as the group of moms that I hung out with, and we all met at the hospital, you know, in in the little classes that you do right away, the Mm -hmm. first six months sort of classes. And then we started meeting at each other's house. And if anything was going wrong, it was, oh, I'll be right over with a bottle of wine. It felt really empowering at the time. And I I didn't see it for kind of what it was because what it was, I think, and what it is, is it's at its core, our intention as mothers is we're trying to rally around each other. We're trying to bring back this really tribal nature of, of parenting, of kind of all being there for each other and picking up the slack. And when somebody is having a hard time, um, but we've infused it with alcohol and how that happened. I did a bunch of research early days when I was actually doing my own research and I found something that I've not been able to find again, but it was an advertising report from this conglomerate of alcohol companies that all shared advertising and demographic insights. And they had identified um, women and specifically moms as an underserved demographic. And so they had started to create very intentional branding and marketing to serve this demographic. And so, you know, brands started springing up like Mommy's Time Out, Mommy's Mommy Juice. All of the merch. Yeah. And then, yeah, all of the merch. So all of the things that we hung in our kitchens, like it's it's every day that ends a day is a good day to drink or no good story ever started with a salad. That's why there's wine. Mommy needs a time out with a wine glass on it. Yeah. All of that. Dozens and dozens of things. And I think that it it needed such a sort of all-out marketing effort and still does because I think as moms, we do have this sort of niggle inside of us, like, huh, is this okay? And and I think that, you know, my audience is mostly women. And I think that we as women, I've noticed, are almost 
more apt and more prone to kind of wake up to it because we do have kind of this this visceral innate sort of caring aspect of us and we realize like oh well my intention is still good being with other women is still good but then at least in my journey i started to notice that i would be falling asleep while reading a book to my kids with a glass of wine mm-hmm. on the nightstand right next to us and have them be like can you just not bring the wine to bed you always fall asleep when you bring the wine to bed and you know these little moments of just kind of like ah oh. and um but i do want to say about it like although i think it's it's heartbreaking. And I I remember getting caught up in it. I do think that like, as moms, like we don't have bad intentions. We're not trying to screw up ourselves or our kids or our lives. And I think that I see, unfortunately, from some sober influencers, I see a lot of posts about kind of almost, you know, the pendulum swings and, and then they're like, moms don't need wine. Moms should be, or like just things that it, I remember if I would have read those things when I, and I get it, I get where they're coming from. But if I would have read those things when I was really drinking, I would have felt, I would have felt shame. It's othering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I see what you're saying. It's tricky. And I, I agree with you that, well, and I want to say this too, you, you hit on something I think really important is that in the grabbing a bottle of wine when somebody had a really hard day and you know going to see your your friends with young children it's not that we want to drink it's that we want to be in community with each other and i think that that's the thing that we're still so hungry for especially after the pand- well we're not post pandemic really but i think the pandemic made it even more difficult and that's the things that we're really for lack of a better word starving for is community and that connection with other humans and how difficult it's become because of the digital age, because of the way that we, our houses are built, like all of these things. And so I just want to kind of name that. I mean, wouldn't you agree that that's the thing that we're all really looking for? And I think that it literally is that we have kind of culturally, and I think a lot of this, you know, not that we can put entire blame on sort of advertising and the industry, but culturally we have intertwined alcohol with absolutely everything, right? If you're moving over pizza and and wine and moving's a fun celebratory thing, right? If you're, if you have a baby shower, I mean, I literally remember going to a baby shower after I stopped drinking and there was a baby bathtub that had been filled up with drinks. (laughs) Oh my God. Like a jungle juice situation. (laughs) Or like, oh, like a cooler? The, the you mean? poor mom. Yeah, like a cooler. And I'm like, I'm like the poor mom. She she can't drink at all, right? And and there she is having right. to, everybody's just getting drunk around her. She feels more deprived. It's just reinforcing the whole thing. There's nothing that we like to do that actually brings us true joy in our culture that at least in my life, I hadn't, I hadn't kind of enmeshed with alcohol. You know, yeah. a lot of the reentry into life without alcohol is about learning that all those things are actually really fun anyway. And we just have to kind of, you know, we kind of have to disentangle alcohol from those things Mm -hmm. and and understand that, yeah, our intentions haven't been bad. I like to really tell people like we honestly, if if you're over drinking, you're doing the best you can with the the tools you have. We've just kind of been given the wrong tools. And I think that's the thing in the mommy wine culture. It's just, the tool has been wine and and actually it's just not the most effective tool. <laughs> yeah, 100%. But before I let you go, I want to ask you one more question and tell us what are some misconceptions that you've learned about non-drinkers specifically? We have to sort of protect or tiptoe around 
um, people who aren't drinking. And I think that it's it's interesting because that that entire conversation, I saw a comedy skit once and it, it said uh, the guy was pretending like mayonnaise was alcohol. And he's like, yeah, I'm not not eating mayonnaise anymore. And the guy's like, oh, well, do you want me to, you know, eat my mayonnaise over there? Like, are you, are you sure? Is it okay with you? And more and more people are starting to see this as kind of like an empowered choice. And we don't actually need or want sort of protecting. Um, we still want to be invited places. We still want to, you know, show up and and be able to make our own decision. And I think that that the nature of those sorts of conversation gives alcohol so much power. Like we wouldn't be doing that if it was mayonnaise. We wouldn't be doing that if it was, you know, somebody was a vegetarian even. We'd still invite them to a barbecue. We might just we might just think to get a few <laughs> veggie burgers, right? Uh-huh. But we just don't invite the person. And I think a lot of that is, um, you know, hopefully changing, but it's something that I think we could do a better job at. Yeah. It's, it's one of the things I say now, because there are still times, it's not as often as it used to be, but there are still times when people get a little bit almost uncomfortable when they ask if I want a cocktail and I say, no, thanks. I, I don't drink or I might say something like that. And they're like, and they look at me and they might even say like, are you sure? Just, you don't want one. And my response with like a straight face is I say, if I start drinking, I'm going to probably try to make out with you or your husband and then show everybody my boobs. So you probably don't want me to drink just like to kind of turn the tables. A little oh, I love that. that is amazing. And I, I've only done it a handful of times. And then I, of course, in the next breath, tell them that I'm just kidding. But yeah, I'm like, that is honestly what will probably happen. So do you want me to be really truthful with you? Because I'm gonna. But it took me a long time to be that comfortable saying that to people and also not feeling a little defensive when when people would ask me why I'm not drinking. Well, I want to make sure before we end, is there anything that you want to circle back to, to make sure that you say or underscore something before we leave so that you feel complete? Well, I just just to touch on what you just said, I and mean, I think it's just an important kind of point that gave me so much relief when I realized it is I was showing up at all of these social functions and and people would be like, wait, just one? Can't you have one? Like, why aren't you drinking? And there was a lot of almost aggression in it sometimes. And then mm-hmm. I said, no, they'd start telling me about how they don't have a problem and how much they drink. And it would be this whole kind of confessional. And I, and right. I was just sitting there and I, I realized after this happening so many times that Never once had somebody who truly was totally at peace with their relationship with alcohol ever given me any sort of pushback, right? And so I realized that every single human who was giving any sort of pushback or any sort of judgment really was was not at peace themselves. And I saw that dynamic. It provided a lot of freedom because I could have compassion rather than feeling defensive or judgmental. And I think that was really helpful for me when I was navigating saying no in the early days. That's true. I've, I've had that same experience. So tell people where to find more about you. And to my understanding, you, you run programs for people who want to change their relationship with alcohol, but also you certify helping professionals to do this work. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um the best the best entry point is I actually have a free challenge. It's a 30-day challenge. It's called the alcohol experiment just for anybody who is just curious about if life would be better drinking a bit less. Um it's alcoholexperiment.com or you can find it on the App Store. And I have a podcast, the Snake in Mind podcast, and then I do have coaching programs for people who are really serious. We have a year-long coaching program called The Path and then the Snake in Mind Institute is where I certify um coaches in kind of my methodology that whole knowledge first, then emotion, then behavior um, change methodology in order to help 
uh, really people can hang their own shingle and, and create their own coaching practice with the tools that I've I've developed and taught. Nice. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Of course, all of those links will be in the show description. Listeners, thank you so much for staying with us for this entire episode. I know that your time is incredibly valuable and I'm grateful that you choose to spend it here. And remember, it's our life's journey to make ourselves better humans and our life's responsibility to make the world a better place. Bye for now. Hey, did you know there's free secret podcast episodes waiting for you that are not part of my regular podcast feed? Yes. AndreaOwen.com slash free. And you just sign up. You get a link sent to you. It's very secret. It's like a secret club. We don't have a secret handshake. Don't worry about that. But it's these motivating podcast episodes that I made for you. They're under 20 minutes each. There's three of them. They're for wherever you are in your life. So head on over there and grab them. They range from really supporting you and seeing you where you are and being compassionate all the way to giving you a giant kick in your ass and telling you how amazing and gorgeous and phenomenal you are. So andreaowen.com slash free and get your hands on that free podcast feed.